Bienvenidos, marhaban, and welcome to the Never Never podcast, exploring the Dresden Files by Jim Butcher. I'm your host, Christine. I'll be releasing multi-chapter analysis episodes for each book, along with special bonus topic episodes between books, on no particular schedule. Here we discuss the series world-building, overarching plot, foreshadowing, character intros, as well as any meta-aspects, mythology, callbacks to other books, and theory. The Never Never podcast may include spoilers from all sources. The Dresden Files features mature themes, including sexuality and violence. Also, I'm terrible at watching my language, so the Never Never podcast is intended for mature audiences, despite having playful, if not childish, tendencies. Things have been hectic. Thank you all for sticking with me through this break I had to take. Sometimes life demands our attention and leaves us so exhausted that there's nothing left for what we enjoy. And I do enjoy making these episodes for you. But here we are again, long awaited. Episode 13, Silence, Smooth and Steady. Recorded August 22nd, 2021. Covering Full Moon, Book 2, Chapters 12 through 15. In this episode, Misunderstandings at the crime scene lead Murphy to arrest Harry. Again. An unexpected ally comes to rescue Harry, and he discovers the joy of being shot while escaping through the shrubberies. Waking in a cheap hotel room, wound tended, Harry finds that his rescuer, Tara West, isn't human, and her fiancé can perform one hell of a headlock. Harry wants answers, and he asks, maybe too many questions. So, let's draw our circle and step through the way to the never-never. Chapter 12. I can explain. 888 Ralston Place is large and opulent for a townhouse. The crisp October wind brings with it the feeling of being watched. Dresden approaches the police out front, and Carmichael meets him, still convinced Dresden's a fake. We get a great description of Carmichael's appearance and style. He's short, round, slobby, with piggy eyes and a soup-stained tie. Carmichael is, though, a skeptic, and a, quote, razor-sharp cop, unquote. This fuels his incredulity about Dresden's authenticity and usefulness, but he's happy to see Dresden this time and gives the nicest greeting he's ever given. Quote, it's about fucking time. Jesus Christ, Dresden. Unquote. He then gets Dresden up the stairs to Murphy post haste after offering to stall the feds when they show up. That tells us something about his character. Either he was told to do this or he thought of it himself, but either way, He's willing to put himself in the way of people who could upset the comfort of his stable career and make his life difficult, just to give Murphy time for Dresden, whom he believes to be a fraud, to see the scene. That's loyalty. So, he may be a slob, but he's sharp and questioning, and selfless, making him a formidable detective. Love, Carmichael. Dresden enters the bare master bedroom upstairs, and there are two things in the room— one is a greater circle of summoning. The other is Kim Delaney, face up in a pool of blood, with droplets and splashes and spurts all over the floor and one wall. Quote, 
What was left of Kim Delaney lay naked and supine on the blood-stained floor a few feet from the circle. The expression of shock and surprise on her face wouldn't change until rigor set in. Her dark, once-glittering eyes stared up at the ceiling, and her lips were parted, as though in the middle of an apology. Unquote. And the next paragraph is graphic, and I won't quote the whole thing. I'll just mention a gruesome but genius simile. If you don't want to hear it, you can skip ahead a couple seconds. Are they gone? Okay. It's the thoughts evoked by her having been opened like a Ziploc bag. I realize this is morbid. I'm kind of a morbid person. Anyway, this isn't the last we hear of Kim Delaney. She's mentioned further into this book and once in a later book as part of a long list of people Harry has lost. But yeah, this is pretty much it for her. Alas, poor Kim, I did not know her well. The horror is too much. Harry shuts down. The whole thing is surreal and preposterous. But there the situation is, persisting, despite its impossibility. He starts reacting to the emotional trauma. Cold sweat, shaking hands. He tries to tell Murphy he's not okay, but she won't listen. She just keeps telling him what they know of the case. Angrily. Full-bodied anger. She surmises that Harley McFinn is the loop guru, and the circle was a failed attempt at trying to contain the monster. Kim's throat got in the way, and then the creature escaped by crashing through the window. Now here's where Harry learns from his previous mistakes and realizes that open, honest communication is the best way to prevent misunderstandings. He tells Murphy that he knows the victim. She came to him with a drawing of this, and he told her it was too dangerous. He never thought she'd do something that rash. Huh. Oh, wait. Don't we wish? No. Here is where Harry keeps all that to himself and proceeds to rattle off the gossip from Chauncey about the Northwest Passage Project and Marcone's entanglement. This was his chance. This was the opening Murphy gave him to come clean about his connection to the deceased and therefore the case. But in his emotionless haze, he knew it would be too painful to talk about. So... He just went for the next bit of pertinent information. His intel. Murphy shows Harry a photograph of McFinn and the woman from the department store. He confirms she's the one he saw. Murphy leads Harry down into the basement of the building and a cell within. It's bare concrete, no windows, heavy steel door. Inside the cell is a greater summoning circle wrought in silver and obsidian. Had it not been marred and broken throughout, it would have been an effective barrier against the loop guru getting out. But someone had trashed it, and Kim Delaney had tried to help. She just didn't have the foundational knowledge she would have needed to pull it off. She didn't have it because Harry wouldn't give it to her. And she had died for it. Harry starts to have a panic attack. But he breathes his way out of it, and opens his eyes to see the fury on Murphy's face as she produces the drawing Harry had crumpled and thrown on the floor of Max. She then proceeds to punch him repeatedly, and arrest him, while calling him a liar, after he'd promised he'd be straight with her. She feels duped. She knows he's connected to this case, and people are dying. Having cuffed him, Murphy disarms Harry completely. Quote, she took my blasting rod, my shield bracelet, the energy ring, even my lump of chalk. Unquote. She takes away all of the things he uses to keep himself safe. 
all of the physical things connected to his magic, his blanky items, so to speak, except for his pentacle necklace, whose main use is as a flashlight. Harry thus stripped, Murphy walks him back to the front room, and he, quote, didn't try to fight or explain. What was the point? Unquote. He's lost his sometime apprentice, his best friend, and his freedom, all in the space of a few minutes. And it's his fault. He's given up. But we, as audience, can see that the blame for this situation is spread all over Murphy, too. For one thing, she engaged in police brutality. I'll grant she felt this was personal, and obviously Harry did too, or he may have stood up for himself. But Harry wasn't even resisting arrest, and Murphy was well within the bounds of excessive force. Boo! And for another thing, he tried to explain himself honestly after he'd realized Murphy knew. And Murphy refused to hear him, wouldn't let him speak, yelling, No more lies! So, neither one of them is communicating. The narrative folly that leads to the next predicament. Chapter 13 Tara West is a ninja. All are agape at Murphy leading Harry down the stairs, hands cuffed behind him. Carmichael is floored, mouth open. He speaks his disappointment. Damn, Dresden, I thought you were one of the good guys. Even the FBI agents are surprised. Carmichael puts Harry in the back of a police car, and Harry is ruminating on his shitty situation and his shitty self. He feels that he's betrayed his friend. Even though he didn't really keep secrets from Karen, he still wishes he was dead. What an awful feeling. He is silent about his arrest, not only because he's in pain from his beating, but also because Kim's death has made him feel he deserves both the beating and the arrest. Here I get pedantic for a moment. The Butcher says that McFinn, quote, could not have murdered either last month's victims or Spike at the varsity last night, which begged the question, who had done the killings, unquote. It does no such thing, Jim. Begging the question is a logical fallacy wherein the conclusion is presupposed in the premise or premises. This is merely a question which demands an answer. Rant over. Harry has no answers, just more speculation. Was it the woman from the department store or one of her cronies in Alpha? Except they could have killed him in the department store, and they didn't. And then he feels it again. He's being watched. Is the murderer here for him now? The back door to the car opens, and... It's the woman from the department store. Dun-dun-dun! Lithe and strong, salt-and-pepper hair, dark skin and fierce amber eyes. She tries to convince Harry to escape, or rather, be rescued by her from police custody. He hems and haws. I don't know you or your motives. I am Tara West, and I need you to help my fiancé, Harley McFinn. I'm not a vigilante superhero, I'm a hired consultant. Now, perhaps not yet, but Harry most certainly will be a vigilante superhero, operating outside both mortal law and the jurisdiction of the White Council to save the people of Chicago and the world from all manner of villainy. Back to Harry under arrest. Finally, the woman points out the danger to Murphy should she find McFinn before Harry, and that seals the deal. There's a terrible line about how the bitch is right, no pun intended, Huh, huh. 
because she's a wolf and a female dog is... yeah. Yeah. Though this was surely intended to be a joke, it's demeaning and unfunny and should never have gotten past editing. But since Tara is right, despite the trouble it will bring down on him, Harry will run so he can help her and her fiancé. He exits the car, his hands still restrained behind him, and begins to creep through the bushes. But they're spotted immediately, and after one warning shout of, Stop! The FBI opens fire. Harry stands and bolts, following the deft Terra West through the landscaping to freedom. But first, Harry's shot in the shoulder, putting him in the worst shape we've seen him to date. He has a moment of synesthesia and falls. Then Tara helps him up and tells him that his shoulder is not bleeding that badly. It's not his leg that's hurt. Quote, run or die, unquote. So he runs. I love this description, and it brings up an interesting point. Quote, We started a game of shadow-haunted hide-and-seek in the little garden, Tara and me against the agents behind us. She moved like a wraith, in utter silence, smooth and steady, in the black shadows and silver light of the moon overhead. She immediately cut into the hedges, taking lefts and rights every few paces. She did not slow down for me, and I was somehow very certain that McFinn's fiancé would not stop and wait for me should I fall." Unquote. I find it interesting that Harry is so convinced of Tara's pragmatic ruthlessness, she keeps checking that he's still behind her. She hefts him over the eight-foot-high iron garden fence when he can't climb it, and when he passes out from loss of blood and summoning an obscuring mist so that she can jump the fence too, she somehow gets him away and into a cheap hotel where she tends to his wound. It's silly, really. If he'd been thinking clearly, he would have realized that she has quite a bit invested in making sure Harry gets out of there intact and risked life and limb to make sure he does. By not slowing down, she was likely just encouraging Harry to go fast enough for them to get away, not so she could leave him behind. Chapter 14. Rude Introductions. Quote, I woke up someplace dark and warm. Unquote. Harry is perpetually waking up from his injuries and exhaustion in dark places. We talked about that a bit in episode 9, Burning Bridges Behind Me, drawing parallels between his abrupt and unpleasant return to consciousness at the end of both Stormfront and Ghost Story, and here he does it again, though at least the hotel room is warm and not wet like the rain or the damp cave in which he found himself in those books, respectively. Tara has cleaned and dressed Harry's wound, having undressed him to do so. He checks that he didn't sleep with her, which is an understandable reaction to a stranger having taken off all your clothes. Everything hurts. His jaw where Murphy hit him, his wrists where the cuffs had chafed him, and his shoulder most of all. It seems Tara separated the cuffs with a hacksaw while he slept. It is now late afternoon the next day, and there isn't much time to find McFinn and help him. Tara is insistent that they leave immediately and Harry stubbornly refuses to go with her until she answers his questions. She ducks outside in frustration for a minute and returns, again adamant that they must go now. This continues until Tara stares at him, and he stares right back into her eyes for a long moment, 
nothing happens. Quote, that in itself was enough to make my jaw drop incredulously. I continued to stare, and she didn't blink, didn't turn away, and didn't fall into the soul gaze with me. I shuddered in reaction. What was going on? Why didn't the gaze begin? There were only two kinds of people whose eyes I could meet for more than a second or two. The people who had already met my eyes in a soul gaze were one kind. Inhuman beings from the never-never were the other. Then, whoever she was, whatever she was, Tara West wasn't human. Unquote. Inhuman she may be, but again Harry is making erroneous presumptions. Tara doesn't have to be from the never-never. She could merely be a non-human. She can be just as much a natural creature as Harry is himself, of this world, but using magic. Put a pin in that for a later episode. Tara West then informs Harry that on her little trip outside, she had called the cops and described to them Harry acting irrationally and possessing a weapon. Now can we please go? Harry dresses in the clothes she acquired for him, huge purple sweatpants and a t-shirt saying, Invest in America by a congressman. Again, Jim Butcher has Harry fighting evil in sweatpants and boots, making him an almost absurd figure. It helps to keep the story well out of the melodrama category, which a trench coat wearing wizard could easily fall into. Harder to do in novelty clothes from a truck stop. As they drive away in the beater Tara rented, we get a more detailed description of her. Her height and build? She's pretty. Her perceptive eyes and observant manner. Her strong and scarred hands. Despite her attractiveness, he seems to admire her toughness. Here we have a pretty woman who is unsexualized. A departure from Jim's tendency to pronounce the so-called male gaze. He begins to ask questions again, including about Tara's motives. Is she really helping her fiancé to keep from turning into a monster? Well, yes. Is she trying to eliminate him as a circle caster, perhaps as she had with Kim? Harry, that makes no sense. You could not have cast a protective circle for McFinn from jail. Then, the mystery of the killings that had happened in the days surrounding the few nights of the full moon. And she's not a real werewolf, a human who changes into a wolf. Perhaps she's a shapeshifter from the never-never. Again, he doesn't consider any alternatives, though he chides himself for not knowing more about other cultures' folklore and myths. Wouldn't it be nice if he followed up on this in later books? Wouldn't it, though? You may have noticed a brief, emotionless mention of his dead student. It's a disappointing lack of pathos. Jim then uses begs the question incorrectly, again, showcasing the real reason that this is not my favorite book in the series. But the question which demands an answer still stands. What does she want? Who are these followers of her from the department store? Is it a cult? Something else he can't think of right now? Tara pulls off the main street to a gravel road in Wolf Lake Park. Subtle. They get out and enter an ancient, deciduous forest. Tara begins making noise, cracking sticks and rustling green to get McFinn's attention. Abruptly, Tara gets caught in a snare, a noose tightening around her ankles, whipping her upside down. Then, Navy SEAL style, 
A figure rises from the leaves and begins fighting Harry, winding up with his burly arms around Harry's neck in a chokehold. And Harry hasn't a hope of getting away. Chapter 15. Too Many Questions. So, Harry's getting choked out by a crazy, mostly naked guy, and it's becoming increasingly apparent that he stands no chance of getting out of this without pulling something dangerous out of his sleeve. So, without the protective insulation of words, he casts a taser spell, knocking the man backward and laying him out. McFinn just stared into the forest canopy. Dude may as well be the Hulk. As tall as Harry's six foot eight, and doubly broad, muscled like a professional wrestler, and wearing nothing but an ill-fitting pair of cut-off pants. Tara wigs out, thinking Harry has killed her fiancé. She almost changes, or is that his adrenaline-addled imagination? She does, however, charge straight at him, howling. Again, Harry calls her a bitch. <sighs> Truly unnecessary. But he must defend himself, and casts one of his air elemental spells, Vento Giostras, and it goes off a bit more strongly than he meant for it to. Wanting only to have knocked her back and away, he winds up casting a self-described mini-cyclone, which throws her through the air and into a tree. It also strips the surrounding trees of leaves, even branches, and the ground in a 50-foot circle bereft of leaf cover, topsoil, and even some large rocks. Oops. But McFinn is sitting up, and so Tara stops trying to kill Harry. Tara and McFinn begin to kiss stridently, making Harry uncomfortably suggest that they get out of the open. After a moment, they agree, and McFinn apologizes to Harry for almost choking him out before they go to McFinn's small camp. Here we'll be going through most of the beats of this conversation because I have a lot of thoughts about specific points throughout. So here goes. Harry lays it out for McFinn. If he wants Harry's help, he'll be answering some questions. Why is Kim Delaney dead? McFinn tries to explain the curse and what it does to him. Quote, When it happens, when I change. Have you ever been angry, Mr. Dresden? So angry that you lost control? That nothing else mattered to you but acting on your anger? Once, I said. Unquote. Once. Now, Harry gets angry all the time. He's hot-headed and acts out rashly, getting himself into trouble often. So if he says once, he's talking about something that stands out to him as extreme. This can only be the confrontation and subsequent conflagration against his abusive mentor, Justin Dumorin. To kill with magic, one has to believe that it is somehow the right thing to do. For Harry to believe that death is the answer must have taken a towering rage, the likes of which we've never seen from him. McFinn talks about the onset of the curse, how he'd lost his entire platoon in Vietnam, and his fury exploded, leaving no enemy alive for two miles in any direction. My thought is, what are the odds he didn't run into a single innocent or friendly? Not high. What are the odds that every soldier he killed stood and fought with a rampaging loot-guru werewolf bearing down on them? Not fucking high. He most likely murdered, 
dozens or hundreds of men and, and maybe women and children who were fleeing for their lives. Either way, he spent every full moon after that a monster. McFinn goes on to tell of Kim and how he met her through her activism, how she'd mentioned that Harry was teaching her to control her ability. Then a month ago, they asked her for help because someone broke the circle in his basement. She said she could do it, but when it all started to go tits up and McFinn told her it wasn't working, she wouldn't leave. And as he changed, it just made him so mad that she wouldn't listen. Harry questions him about the other killings. Did he do them? What about Tara? Here, Harry grants it temporarily when McFinn claims he and his fiancée didn't do it. But Harry's got a couple of theories. 1. A group of gangsters who know about McFinn's curse kill some people before the full moon, and then, to throw suspicion off themselves, fuck up the circle to make sure McFinn goes nuts and pulls the heat onto himself. So, when someone like Harry or the White Council came sniffing, they'd look no further. Notice that? Someone like Harry or the Council. Even after being taken off the pretentious probation, he is still most definitely not associating himself with them, at least subconsciously. In fact, he makes the distinction twice, making a list of himself and the Council. 2. Another theory of Harry's. McFinn is the killer after all, making it look like he's being set up. Woe is me. I'm a poor cursed thing, and I couldn't have done the extra killings because I was not changed at the time. But human-shaped humans murder every day, and some of the non-full moon deaths were awfully conveniently people standing in the way of the Northwest Passage Project. But why would McFinn kill innocents? You mean like Kim? McFinn did not answer. Harry says he doesn't know what to believe. McFinn explores the theory where he isn't the killer. Who would want to set him up? Well, Marcone has the motive, but how did he find out about the curse? How did he know to desecrate the circle? And it's not his M.O. He'd have offed him like a gangster, not in such a convoluted way. So who else could it be? No clue. No suspects. McFinn says, quote, You don't know what it's like, Mr. Dresden to live with yourself. I rubbed at my mouth and chin with my good hand. I needed a shave." Unquote. Way to deflect, Harry! He does know what it's like. He'd been in McFinn's shoes. Once. Then he gets a wicked idea about Tara. What if she is setting up McFinn? She could be tired of him and wanting him out of the way. She could have done it all herself, or, quote, Marcone could have found out about McFinn from Tara, and about the weakness of his circle from Tara as well. Tara wasn't human, not even a little. She was something else, maybe a being from the Never-Never, who knew how her mind worked. And here, Harry finally seems to entertain a vague possibility that she might be from the Never-Never, which implies that she might not be. But the kids from the department store, what's up with that? Harry tries to trip Tara up by asking after George and Billy. She is thrown, and does not wish to talk about it anymore. Just as obviously, McFinn has no idea to what Harry is referring, but then they hear it, and, 
listening, Harry hears it too. Murphy is there, ordering people to fan out for the search. He asked too many questions. They are out of time. Murphy and Carmichael are arguing about waiting for the feds, holding them up, and how he doesn't even think Harry and the woman are here. Quote, I'll bet you sexted donuts that they are, Carmichael, Murphy said, her voice dripping sweet venom. And that should tell you how certain I am. Unquote. That's it. No commentary beyond how much I love the phrase, I'll bet you sex to donuts. Harry is tapped on the magic front. McFinn suggests they split up, and the first one, nabbed, should make a scene so that the others can get away. Harry points out that he and McFinn need to stay together so Harry can cast the circle. And Tara agrees. Before her fiancé can stop her, she makes a beeline for the cops, and McFinn swears, Bitch. Again? Really? Like, what the actual fuck? How many times do you think you can get away with this deprecating epithet? Ugh. Okay, I'll shut up. Anyway, Tara goes down the hill, and McFinn and Harry go uphill, splitting up to meet at the nearest gas station. From the direction Tara went, they hear shouting and gunshots, but there's nothing they can do but run. And that's it for today. A truly disappointing number of times Tara is called a bitch, and no growth for Harry in the communication department. Kim is mentioned a few times, and even with emotion, sometimes. But then again, it is her death they're investigating. After this, we hardly hear her mentioned ever again. Unlike Linda Randall, an amazing bite-sized character, Kim seems flat to me. But if I'm wrong, please let me know in the comments. Arigato, Dankeschön, and thank you all kindly for listening. I've been your host, Christine. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for providing the music for this episode. Links below. Thank you to my supporters, without whom this project would not be possible. You know who you are. Thank you to my inspirations, those literary podcast giants on whose mighty shoulders I attempt to balance. And thanks to Jim Butcher for creating such a thrilling and insightful series up about which I simply cannot shut. The Never Never Podcast is available on your favorite podcatcher. If you enjoyed this episode, please help the podcast grow for free. Take 30 seconds or less and share, like, comment, subscribe. Write a review on iTunes. Send me your feedback. Email me at theneverneverpodcast at gmail.com or chat with me on Twitter at neverneverpod. You have my consent to flirt with my algorithms and to spank all the buttons. My peeps, love everyone as though they were you. Take care.